I'm walking down the street, looking at my phone, and like anyone else wearing earbuds, try to block out the noise. Maybe I'm blind to the physical world because I only see it. I'm just go going to make a... I'm not going to change that sound. It will remain constant. But what I will change is my proximity to the wall. I'm simply going to move toward the wall and see what happens to the sound when I do that, keeping your eyes closed. Daniel Kish was born blind. He's a human echolocation expert and teacher. He uses sound clicks on a daily basis to navigate the world. Echolocation isn't just for bats and dolphins. It turns out people can use it too. So a tree starts out solid near the bottom, and as you kind of branch out, it becomes more sparse, and it becomes broader. Despite Kish being blind, he uses the same part of the brain that everyone uses for sight. The difference is in technique. While I may glance over, an echolocator clicks over. Echolocation aids navigation, but it's more than that. It's another way of perceiving, visualizing through sound. My mom's always telling me to listen more. I think she means to her, but what if she's right? Am I blind to the physical world because I only see it? Back in my hotel room, I put on a blindfold. The first question is, where's the wall? What do I hear when I can't see? Why is it so hard for me to find a wall? Blindness is associated with inability to navigate freely and safely. So it's just not a simple technique that you give it to somebody. You know, they learn to click and, and magic takes place. It's really fighting against the visual culture and it's the evaluation of non-visual senses. That's what Thomas Tajo thinks. He's an echolocator who lost his sight at the age of nine. Everything I know is from what I see. The books that I read, the movies that I watch. Sight for me is truth, understanding. Take, for example, you, listening to me on this podcast. How did you get here? You had to see to get to this place of hearing. Navigate and click on a play button, all on a screen. So when you see somebody who doesn't have that sense that allows you to do that, there's a presumption. You automatically think of them as disabled people. It didn't take me time to really learn to echolocate. It was more about developing trust in my non-visual senses and and once I developed that kind of trust, the way I understood about myself and my body completely changed. And that's why, you know, when we teach uh, blind people to echolocate, we teach them first to hear something by placing in front of them and they click and then ask them, does it exist or is it in front of you or not? So if it is, go and touch it. So often they will have to confirm what they heard by touching and that's how we really build a trust in your ability to hear it's not a figment of imagination when you close your eyes you begin to feel your body you experience your body you occupy your body more you become more aware of your non-visual abilities
when you are sighted, you are looking at other bodies. So you do not really feel and experience your own body. Thomas was right. I don't trust my ears. And if my clicks were like questions, probing into space and asking for answers in return, my questions were hesitant. I found the wall, sort of, but not in the way Daniel Kitch described. I walked into it. (laughs) I'd like you to please keep me from running into this wall. Since I hit a wall, I head back to the Smith Kettlewell Eye Institute. There are about a dozen of us in a room to learn more echolocation techniques. So what you'll do is you'll listen. Just say stop or now when you hear me approaching the wall. A lot of it is security, it's confidence. Oh, better. Okay, open your eyes. Right. So you get the idea. Okay, the idea basically is is there is a sound that happens with object proximity. What did that sound like to you? What was your impression? How how would you characterize what it essentially sounds like uh, as that sound approaches a a surface? Something getting higher pitched. Higher pitched, louder. Higher pitched, Notice our language is so rooted in sight. Sighted people like to talk about what they see all the time. And literature is filled with you know, visual description. But we don't tend to have the same sort of description for non-visual experience. I had found the wall, but I was discovering these other walls. I wanted to build that trust, that sensitivity to sound. When you think about how we describe sound, it's always cross-modally, right? So we describe sound by touch. Is it rough? Is it smooth? By temperature, is it hot, is it cold? Visualization, is it high, is it low? And so, um, so we, we sort of spatialize and texturalize sound, but we don't have a metric to actually, we don't, we don't actually have a, a set of standard terminology that actually describes what a sound is in its own terms. Jonathan Berger did not think of himself as a sound guy. I'm a super latecomer to music. I dropped out of college when I was a freshman. I knew I loved music. I knew nothing formally about it. So I restarted my life a few years later. And um, Today, he's a music professor at Stanford University, conducting research in music, science, and technology. He pays a lot of attention to sound, more than most sighted people I've met. Nothing was intuitive. Everything was a question. And that's why I started doing research about it. I, Every sound you hear has, has a characteristic, right? So that jet that we're hearing outside that's probably getting onto this, this recording. He's referring to the jet outside the small room in which we're sitting. It becomes so much louder once he points it out. And think about what you know about that jet. You hear it, you know it's descending, right? You hear the, the, you hear the overall pitch going down. You know it's getting farther away because it's getting more distant in space. If you're really good at... at um, at aeronautics, you can tell what kind of plane it is from the engines. So there's a whole lot that we interpret about sound. I guess there's a lot of information that we don't get from seeing, but yet we don't have a whole lot of people that are choosing to do anything close to echolocation if they're not blind. Like, mm-hmm. Why is that? Yeah, that's a really good question. Scientists are very visual people. 
They like graphs and they like numbers and they don't trust their ears. And, and, and well, I, you know, if you think about the difference between hearing and seeing, there's some fundamental differences. I mean, really stupidly simple fundamental differences, not the least of which is we can close our eyes. We have eyelids, but we don't have earlids, right? So we can close our eyes and, and cut out vision and we can selectively see things, right? But we can't do that with sound. So one of the problems with sound is that it's, it's always there. One of the benefits of sound is that it's always there, right? It's a blessing and a curse. Today it's about blocking out sounds, or what not to pay attention to. In the past, it wasn't. Were we more aware of sound before? We can see a cathedral, but can we hear it? Can you use the music to see the space it once echoed in? I spent all of last year in Rome measuring the acoustics of spaces and trying to build models of those spaces. Here are these fantastically beautiful and lush churches with huge reverberation times, all built in the 1500s, early 1600s. You can see that these people knew exactly what they were doing in terms of the quality of sound and the quality of the space. It has a very long decay time, right? It can, decay times can go from, you know, five seconds to 12 seconds to 20 seconds. So one of two things will happen. Either you write music that fits that, aesthetically fits that decay time, and that's what it's, you know, chant of the 9th, 10th, 11th century. It sounds beautiful in these spaces because things are happening in one voice and they're happening very slowly and they sort of harmonize with themselves. We beautified sound to fit in spaces like churches so that they could be heard. We, even the sighted, were aware of the relationship between sound and space. Maybe I just need to pay more attention to how sound I create is moving around me. What comes back is reflected from objects in the environment. Sintani is an echolocation researcher at the Smith Kettlewell Eye Institute. You don't just sit there and let sounds, you know, sensory information come in. You actually have to send out a sound. He describes echolocation as hearing objects that are otherwise silent. You're pinging the world and seeing what comes back. Um, hi, I'm Takako, and uh, I research now music perception and cognition using brainwave. That's very, very interesting in a sense that echolocation itself is not only about the ears, it's sort of the repeat of the action and the perception. So you have to make tongue sound, like clicking the tongue, and then you're going to listen. 
Takako is saying that you can't simultaneously make and listen to sound. It has to be an iterative process. Interaction between action and the perception, that happens in the music too. You are pressing keyboard or you are trying to understand your fingering on a guitar fingerboard. Then you are always, always expecting what to hear. In that sense, I see a lot of commonalities between echolocation and the music performance. For sighted individuals, we make sound for our own intentions and listen to a response as an afterthought. The beauty of making sound in echolocation is that it's made for the purpose of hearing something in return. We're incredibly well-skilled at hearing differences in volume. We're, um, you know, we don't necessarily have the naming conventions, right? So I'm hearing this, this um, whatever it is, this drill or whatever going outside. And I could pick out the pitch. I could say it's going higher now, it's going faster, it's going lower, it just stopped. You know? so, um, so I can tell you a lot about what's happening from that machine. Um, if I were watching it, I wouldn't be able to see it going faster or slower, right? So we're, we're highly sensitized to certain types of changes in the sound world that we're not necessarily in the vision world. Okay, so here, these are these core samples. Um, and if you listen carefully, you'll hear three notes in close proximity. Right? So if you think RGB... That's what it sounds like to musically scan an image gathering information that would be impossible to detect with our bare eyes. RGB, with a high note on the G. And if it's a really greeny sound, that'll change, it'll change timbre to a bell. There, right? Right? Blue should be... Maybe this is how sound develops its own language. We may not be able to describe sound, but with this technology, sound can better describe what we see. I'm getting really good at it. Right? I can tell. So now, I mean, we look at this and it all visually seems about the same color. But these are the, these are the differences in RGB values. Right? Mm-hmm. So we're looking at sort of the fossilized imprints of where life began. But they don't, have, they don't really have a way to... to I mean, they, could, they know that it's there, but they don't have a way to pick them out and measure them. Mm-hmm. And so because they know that... Um, that the, the subtleties of color and texture in the image are meaningful, we're just turning that into sound so that we can play these imprints. So every pic- pixel had 256 numbers that were representing the combination of frequencies, right? That's why it was impossible to see, but it was not impossible to hear. This is what, I mean, we play games with sound all the time. This is about 10 years ago. Their test set was um, the chemistry of of um, tumors. And um, it turned out that we were able to hear um, a malignant tumor versus a non-malignant tumor in a way that, that at the time, um, scientists couldn't see uh, in, with what they had. That's insane. Yeah. Who would think of like listening to a tumor? Sort of cool. Yeah, so we listen to everything. It's exciting because one can think about how much there is out there that we can interpret with sound that we don't. Now I know that if I wanted to, there's enough information to navigate the city. Not just with my eyes, but with my ears.